Um, I love music. I just love music. In fact, uh, I often think of my life in terms of it being a movie, and, uh, and it has a soundtrack to it. I bet you do this as well. You know, that there are certain songs that intersect your life at certain stages in your life. You'll be driving your car and the song will come on and you'll think of middle school. <laughs> or you'll think of college days or a certain friendship circle or a certain event. So music becomes kind of the soundtrack of our lives. Perhaps you've even played the uh, party game. What song uh, represents your life right now? And you go around and it's a sharing question and people get to say what songs sort of echo within their soul. Um, I got uh, satellite radio and I fell in love with uh, the coffee house because uh, they played uh, covers of songs and covering a song is different than the original song. And sometimes the cover brings out parts of the song that I didn't notice before. Uh, don't hold this against me. I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. Look at me. Don't I look like I'm, a, I'm of that era? You know, and for years, for decades, you know, he would start his concerts or at the very beginning with Born to Run. You know, and it, it was this great anthem of breaking out and moving on in fast cars and, and, you know, the sax solo in it was great and the driving beat. And it just, you know, people get up out of their seats and then halfway through the song, he'd get off the mic and the whole place would be singing the song. And, the, you know, the whole Coliseum would fill with voices of, you know, 30,000 people singing and he'd just be up there just grinning. And then, one day, I heard Born to Run with Bruce singing it just with an acoustic guitar and an alternate tuning and a harmonica. And he slowed the song way down. And it was haunting. It was mesmerizing. I heard the song in a way that I'd never heard the song before. And it just stuck with me. And it sticks with me to this day. Songs do that. We, um, in the church, come out of a tradition of songs. In the Old Testament, there are 150 songs that we call psalms. They're prayers that were sung. And these Psalms come in three categories. There's one category, God is so good, the maker of heaven and earth has showed up, and life is wonderful. The sun is up, the sky is blue, it's beautiful. So are you. You know, it's just, yay God. That's one group of songs. There's another group of Psalms. Life is hard. I'm in trouble. I called out to God. Oh my gosh, he showed up. 
isn't he good? And that's a big group of psalms. Psalm 40 is one of those. Let's put that up here. Uh, thanks to Bono and you 2 for making this popular in the 80s and 90s. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me. He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud mire. He set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. Keep going with it. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. That sort of sets up an equation, if you will, for faith. Troubles come. I pray. God shows up and delivers me. Woohoo! Thank you, Lord. And, and that becomes the equation uh, for many of us in our faith. You know, we pray and the sick are healed. Uh, we find deep encouragement on our disappointments. The confusion that we're in gets clarified. The conflicts that are haunting us get resolved. And we go, thank you, Lord. But then there are other times when the sick die. The confusion intensifies. The disappointments deepen. And we go, where is God? He's silent. Well, this equation, I, I had a trouble. I prayed. Where are you? What's going on? That's the third group of psalms that I want to talk about today. And I have one here that I... Uh, I paraphrased. You may want to go back and read it in its original, make sure that I stayed close to the text. But go back and read Psalm 88 sometime. Oh Lord, I've been on my knees night after night. I am so troubled and in so much agony. I feel like I have one foot in the grave in a deep and dark place. Yeah. I'm absolutely without hope, including in you. You really don't seem to care. Actually, let me be blunt. You've abandoned me. And so this is all your fault. It's hard to imagine talking like that in church. Uh, if I were to talk like that, you would judge me as being a weak Christian, lacking faith. Don't I know the Bible? Because of this equation that bad things happen, I pray, God shows up, I live happily ever after. Sometimes church is a difficult place to be really honest. There are moms and dads begging God for the lives of their children. 
and all they hear is silence. What do we do with that? On the one hand, we say, God is good and he's loving. We say it all the time, his steadfast love endures forever. And over here, really bad things happen. Terrible things happen. How do we put those together? In uh, 2011, this reality hit me when uh, we discovered that my wife had stage four kidney cancer. And one moment, we were just normal people with normal problems. And the next minute, we were a family navigating the complexities of the long, slow decline in cancer. God is good. My world is falling apart. And then you go to bed one night and you wake up in the middle of the night to find that your life has changed forever. Your life has changed in a heartbeat or the lack of one. It, uh, we don't do very well with suffering people. Can I share a few things that came my way in my journey in pain? Well-meaning friends would say, you know, everything happens for a reason. I'd like to know what that reason is that for nine years my wife was pumped full of poison and painkillers until she couldn't endure it any longer. What possibly could be a good reason for that? Don't know. Nothing is broken that God can't fix. I believe that's to be true. I, I believe that's true. God can fix But he didn't fix it. What do I do with that? Um, or the verse, you know, what kind of father, when his son asks for bread, gives his son a stone? You know, fathers know how to be good to their children. God will be good to you. Never negatively confess. In fact, only say the positive things. For a while, we became like uh, NBA players smack-talking the opposition, you know, when it came to talking to cancer. We just talked it down. Just say the positive. Just affirm the positive. And it eventually got to a place where it's becoming more popular now. Toxic positivity can be an incredible form of denial. God is a God of yes. Or here's a list of verses. Keep repeating these verses like you were taking medicine, and they'll help control the way you think and see. Now, hear me. Before you start throwing rocks or rotten tomatoes at me, I believe those responses 
often work and they're often right. But there are times when those responses ring hollow. And then other friends would say, ah, it's all good. It's all good. And I'd say, no, it's not. It's not all good. Life is beautiful and life is tragically difficult. And we never know when the pin is going to be pulled on our life. When the things that undergird our lives and give us support just crumble. And the simple answers no longer are satisfying. And so we live over here. And it feels like the rest of our world is over here. And I'm feeling abandoned. The uh, Jews had a name for this. Uh, we saw it in Psalm 40, actually. They had a place they called Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. It's uh, in their cosmology. When you died, you went to Sheol. It was the place where the dead go. And there they wait uh, the coming of the new age when the Messiah would come back and, and start the new age and then these people would come out of Sheol and, and live in this new age and they had that thought. But over time that thought morphed a bit to where it wasn't just the place of the dead but it was the place of the struggling. That when you are in a dark place when you're desperate when you feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling when you feel alone and empty and anxious and frantic and uncertain, as a living person, you are in Sheol. Uh, Sheol is the Hebrew word. The Greeks called it Hades. It's unfortunate when it was translated into English, it was translated hell. Because for us, hell conjures up like final judgment, devils and pitchforks. Uh, but Hades and Sheol was more this place of desperation. And in Psalm 40, he says, you know, I was in the miry place. I was in the pit and God heard my cry and he reached down into the pit and he called me up out of it. This progression. But what of just being in the pit. I find oftentimes my faith becomes more a form of denial than substance. Okay, hold the tomatoes for a minute. Um, I hold on to these things to be true at the expense of the reality that I live in. And what I find to be more needed is the holding together of the two. Life is beautiful. Life is hard. 
I'm filled with grief. I have moments of joy and song. How do I hold that together? The uh, ancient theologians of the church would call what I'm trying to describe here an antimony. Uh, we might use the word a paradox, a mystery. Now, I use that word cautiously. For some, saying the word mystery is just an excuse not to do the hard work of unpacking a complicated idea. I'll just call it a mystery and move on. For others, a mystery is a problem to be solved, like a murder mystery. Who did it? Okay, Colonel Mustard did it with the candlestick in the library. And we solve the mystery. See, and now we're back to this. This happens, this happens, this happens. Solution. Ooh. Sometimes investigative mysteries are a riddle to be solved. Life is not a riddle to be solved. We live in the midst of a true mystery. I'm holding on to two things that seem like they're opposites, and I'm holding them at the same time. I can't deny that God is good. I don't see how he's good here. But the alternative of saying he's not good doesn't make sense either. This blending or holding together of opposites. Um, we would say things like uh, bittersweet is a holding together of opposites. A bright sadness. Or the term that I used in our family, the sacred chaos. It's holding together opposites. Could we uh, put the Maria quote up here? In her book, Brain Pickings, she writes this. In every life, there comes a time when we are raised to the bone of our resiliency by losses beyond our control. Lacerations of the heart that feel barely bearable, that leave us bereft of solid ground. What then? The first time uh, I went to the Anschutz Cancer Center with my wife for um, infusions, we went to the infusion center and uh, there's a, you know, you walk up to the main desk, several attendants at the desk, and they take your name and all your information. And then they gave us a chair number. They gave us chair 37. And uh, so you walk past the desk through a door, and there is a long, narrow, almost like a hallway, that runs the entire length of this huge building, and on the left side are all windows looking at the mountains, and in front of those windows are the infusion chairs. We were in chair 37. That meant we had to walk by 36 chairs to get to our chair. Each chair 
there was somebody's mom or dad, sister or brother, son or daughter, friend, sitting in the chair. I got to tell you, by the time I got to chair 37, I was a mess. And you know what came to mind? I pictured gathering those people together in a room like this and giving my last Young Life Club talk to them. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. My talk was so thin and superficial to people who are confronted with life and death. Somehow I wanted an expression of faith that has dirt under its fingernails, that, that enters into that, that can speak to that with hope without denying it. And that started me on this journey that unfortunately or fortunately you're the recipients of now. <laughs> this is how I'm putting it together. Life is beautiful and life is hard. Some things can't be fixed. Some wounds can't be healed. People would often say, you know, I'm praying for your healing, Ray. I thought, would you go up to a person that's had their leg amputated and say, I'm praying for your healing? No, the amputee will always be an amputee now. They'll always have the reminder of what once was. What once was, easy for me to say. You, know, you don't get healed of that. You learn to live with it. You learn to live through it. But you, it's not something in your past that you, oh yeah, one time, yeah. No, it's, it's a current reality. So what do we do with this? How do I respond to this enormous gap between my expectations and how God works and my current reality? How do I look at my hopes and my dreams and the life that I find myself in the midst of? We have a choice. This choice is important because we become the fruit of our choices. Our choices set our lives on a trajectory. And depending on how we deal with this, we either sharpen up our ability to live in denial or we become so hard, cynical, tough, rugged, durable, obstinate here, or somehow we learn this, just the letting go. I am a soft person in a very hard world. I'm a vulnerable person. I'm fragile. By the way, you're fragile as well. 
the world is hard and it has very sharp corners to it. You know, the Latin word for vulnerable is, the root is to wound. We are woundable. We're not insulated from the wounds of the world. I have grown up thinking of my faith as a what, what I believe, how I would say what I believe. What this journey has taught me is that faith is a who. It's not what I believe, it's in whom I trust. Is God trustworthy? You have to answer that. Your answer to that forms you. In the end, sorrow is not extinguished. It's the world we live in. And if your life hasn't blown up yet, be grateful for that. But be careful. In the end, darkness, pain, sorrow, suffering is not explained. It's defeated. But it's not explained. And we live in the in-between of the lack of an explanation, but holding out in trust. The love of God has the last word. The darkness is still dark. Don't get me wrong. But the love of God has the last word. There's an old confession that said, what's my only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I'm not my own. I belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior. Um, I found this sketch by William Blake. He, uh, he drew the sketch and he called it the Trinity. And this, this picture has been, you know, we all envision something or someone when we think of God. And this has been my picture of God, the Trinity, the Father embracing the crucified Son with the Spirit over the top, shielding, protecting, hovering. And just as the Father embraces the Son, I picture God embracing me. You know, the circumstantial evidence for the goodness of God is inconclusive. It really is. For every sunrise on, on Long's Peak, there's a wind-whipped wildfire. There it is again, the antimony. I'd, uh, I don't want to trivialize this subject, but I have to tell you a story that I think is probably true for a lot of families in here. I would call it the uh, camping trip from hell. It's... Uh, 
you know, as a dad, you go, let's, let's do a family camping trip. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get the kids, you know, and we'll go somewhere. We're not going to car camp. Nope, nope. We're going to borrow my friend's tent, and we're going to get sleeping bags, and we're going to get uh, hot dogs and popcorn and s'mores, and, and we're going uh, to go camping. So, you know, you go somewhere, and you park the car, and, you know, you don't... Kids are small, so maybe you don't hike in that far, but you hike in a ways. And you find this nice little lake, and, and then uh, the family gathers firewood, starts building a fire, and, and that's when it first hits you that you probably should have set the uh, tent up in your backyard to make sure you knew how to pitch the tent before you got out there. So you're struggling pitching the tent, and, and while you're struggling pitching the tent, you hear a clap of thunder, and it starts to rain. And so you're frantically just putting the tent up any way you can, and you get the family in the tent, and you're out of the rain, and now it's just pouring, and the wind is blowing, and you're eating s'mores with marshmallows that are raw, and you're trying to make the best of it until the runoff from the hillside runs right through your tent and across all the sleeping bags down into the lake. Now you really are miserable. Everything's soaking wet. The tent is barely up. You haven't eaten. It's in the middle of the night. And you go, forget this. And you tear down the tent in the rain. You look like the Russian army retreating from the Eastern Front, hiking back to your car, mud, soaking wet, cold. You get the family in the car, you turn the car on, you turn the heat on, and you spend the night in the parking lot, sleeping in the car, till the next morning, you first light, you drive into town, you find a greasy spoon that you can at least go in and use the restroom and wash up a little bit, and then you, you have breakfast, which we would say you rent breakfast in a greasy spoon, you don't really buy it, think about that for a minute, um, and then you go home. And you're just miserable, cold, wet, soggy, nightmare. Flash forward 20 years. You're sitting around the Thanksgiving table. And uh, all the kids are now adults, and you're sitting there, and you're talking. And one of the kids goes, remember the camping trip from hell? <laughs> And they all break out in laughter. Oh, it's just one story after another. Oh, I couldn't believe you. Remember all those words we heard Dad say for the first time? <laughs> My gosh. And, and Mom snored all night in the car. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You know, and they, they laugh, and you were all laughing about something that in the moment was hellacious. Now, remember how I introduced this. In no way am I trying to trivialize what I've been talking about. But is it possible that maybe there'll be a place in time like Thanksgiving around the table where we'll look back at some of even the worst things that happened and see in it something that we aren't even close to imagining today. For now, 
we live in reality. The reality of these two things. When a heart breaks, it breaks one of two ways. It breaks like a crystal glass being thrown to the ground and just shattering across the floor. Or it breaks open. The choice of how your heart breaks is on you. You determine that. But know that our Lord entered our hell. What did he do? He became one of us. He became woundable with us. He didn't abandon us. He's holding us up in the midst of our journey. He's held me up in the midst of mine. At the end of every prayer, we say, Amen. Amen is the final word to a prayer is really a declaration of trust. I'm done talking now is what I'm saying. I've said my peace to you, Lord. I put this matter, I put this matter in your hands. We trust you with it. May the love of God and the peace that only he can bring meet you in wherever you are in your journey. May you know his presence with you even if you can't solve the problem, even if the problem is beyond your understanding. May you trust him. And may we all say collectively, Amen.